Gracious God, our Father, we do rejoice and we do come and find our rest in this home, this alone, Christ, our Savior and our hope. Thank you, Father, for giving Jesus. Thank you that you offer your Son to every sinner willing to come and say, ah, I need you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy in that, and it is our home. Would you now, Lord, um, come and minister to us? Lord, today, would you clarify the confused? Lord, would you take this word and would you heal the wounded? Would you take this word and would you convict the rebellious? Lord, would you, by your word now, renew and refresh and redeem all of us who fight the battle with sin? This is what we ask, all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Mr. Brixey was an English teacher that I had while in school, a man that I actually respected a great deal, and I really liked him. I think it was probably about eighth grade. I was wandering uh, through the halls with a couple of buddies. I think it was after school because there was like really nobody else around. In fact, the, the three of us thought there was nobody else around. And we were just wandering and talking and, and doing uh, the kinds of conversation that um, young teenage boys do. And uh, I, don't, I have no idea the rest of our conversation. All I know is that one of us said something about the word, uh, about something, and used the word fornication. And we thought, fornication, what a hilarious word. And we all started laughing as we were walking down the hallways. All of a sudden, a deep voice came from behind us. Excuse me? We turned around to see Mr. B, and he said, do you boys have any idea what that word means? I wasn't quite sure if I did. I mean, I thought I did until he asked me. But all I remember and what struck me, and he didn't say anything else about it, but I just was struck by how serious he was in his tone. Years later, I read the story of a woman whose husband had had an affair broken. Sometime later, she too, in turn, had an affair. What a word, right? Affair. That's the word that we use because it's so much easier than using the word adultery. She recalled after telling her husband the news of her affair, her adultery, that she went and spent some time because she just needed to get away uh, in a cheap hotel. She wrote an article, and she said, you know, at the end of it all, that to me is what it all was, just cheap hotels. It starts out to be, in the moment, so romantic and so sensuous and what feels like life-giving and wonderful. But from his cheap hotel to me and my paramour's cheap hotel to now this cheap hotel that I sit in all alone, that's really what it delivers. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Our text for this morning is five words long. In the Hebrew, it's two. Five words long. But it would take five series of sermons to begin to unpack all the ramifications of this text. What we're hoping to do in our survey of these Ten Commandments in these weeks is to see how these ancient commands reveal 
the infinite wisdom of God, how they reflect his compelling and impeccable character, how they form the backbone of society and relationships and all of human reality, and how they magnify the beauty and the sufficiency of our only Savior and our only hope, Jesus Christ. We ignore the commands of God to our peril. We reject them to our destruction. We learn from them for our renewal, for our clarity, for our sanity, for our safety, and for our sanctification. This morning, then, we come to this commandment. But like each of the Ten Commandments, this one is amplified throughout all the rest of Scripture until eventually it forms the backbone of an entire body of guidance and wisdom in this area of our lives. You can see that clearly just by glancing at the extra handouts that you have. For Israel, this command given to them as they were there at the foot of Mount Sinai as God forms his society of people. This command and all of its implications was absolutely necessary in order, to, in order to order a sane society. And for us, this command is readily relevant as well to all of our lives. On this side of the sexual revolution, sexual temptation now is all around us, is it not? Immorality is the norm. Pornography is expected. Virginity and purity and modesty are prudish. That's where we are. And so that's what we need to address. So for our time together this morning, I'd like to spend our minutes in two passages. Parents, uh, I believe, will be PG rated this morning, but judge accordingly in what you choose to do with your children. We'll leave the big discussions to you, but we might raise a couple this morning. Uh, But if you need to do differently with your kids, totally uh, welcome that. For our time together, two passages that are going to broadly address sexual sin and temptation, may they be for us our clarity, our rescue out of an insane society, and a renewal for all of us, because all of us in some way or another have stumbled and fallen. Proverbs chapter 5 is written a few hundred years after the Lord gives these words to Israel from Mount Sinai. And these few hundred years later, a Hebrew father pens his advice to his sons, captured here in Proverbs. These words of God become timeless wisdom for men and women then through the ages and for all believers today. Proverbs 5, pick up with me and I'll read the opening part of our passage, first passage today, 5.1. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Pause there. Proverbs 5 gives us clarity to help us understand a bit about temptation to sexual sin. First, temptation to sexual sin is pervasive and invasive. Pervasive and invasive. In other words, it's everywhere, And it's in your face. 
That's definitely true today, but even back in the ancient day. Notice the father writing and the four warnings, the four urgings he gives. Two there in verse 1, give attention, incline your ear. And two in verse 7, listen to me, do not depart from the words of my mouth. He speaks with urgency and he pleads with his children. He says, hear what I say to you and let these words go deep into your heart because, because you need to be rescued from a world where sexual temptation is all around you and even at times right in your face. To give attention is like, it's like when the child wants you to hear them, parent, and so they grab your face and pull it towards them and says, look at me, or makes you do as much without saying it. To incline your ear means to stretch out, it means to extend, it's to lean forward, it's to cup your hand behind your ear to make sure you don't miss a syllable. That's what the father is encouraging for his sons. Why? Because sexual temptation is everywhere. And, and it's even where we don't want it and don't need it. Every one of you right now at this moment has pornography in your pocket. Or, or in your purse, or maybe you're using your phone. But you carry it with you everywhere you go. And it will be there to greet you every time you just are trying to log on to your social media account or you're just wanting to go and send an email, or you just want to figure out what show should we maybe watch tonight, it will be there calling to you, won't it? You know that, I know that, and many, many other places. Sexual temptation is everywhere, and it's in your face. It's pervasive and invasive. Next, sexual temptation is persuasive and coercive. It is persuasive and coercive. It is able to cause us to do things. Look at the power of it, spoken in verses 3 and 4. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. She portrays one thing. He seems to show you, ladies, one thing. This Account, by the way, can be applied to both men and women, rest assured in that. But what will be delivered is something very different. Oh, he's smooth with his words. He's, he's kind. He smiles at you every single time you see him without fail. He is thoughtful and remembers something you brought up last time that you were concerned about. He might even remember your birthday or other special things. He's smooth, and everything about him just seems wonderful to be in the sunshine of his care. And yet what he delivers is bitter and sick, painful, and it'll make you groan, like being cut by a sword, a two-edged sword, no matter how you move it, no matter how you move it, it's, it's going to do damage, and that's the idea here. You have to appreciate the reality of Scripture, don't you? Because Scripture never hides from the enjoyment of sin. It doesn't say, you know, sin is really not that much fun. I, can't, I don't even understand why you do it. No, it says to you and it says to me, oh, I know why you do it. Because, man, it looks great and it feels wonderful for a time. Scripture doesn't lie and it doesn't pull punches. 
And that is so good because it tells us that sin is a deception. Sexual sin especially so. Sexual union is meant to do many things in a marriage, designed by God for his purpose. But one of those, and certainly not the least of them, is to seal the covenant of marriage. It's to make two one. And to use sex in any other context than in a marriage will ultimately leave a void. Michael Horton says it this way, marriage was God's gift for experiencing the deepest relationship of humanity. And sexual activity outside of this, is, is outside of this institution is an attempt to enjoy the pleasure of this covenant without the responsibility of this covenant. The irony, of course, known all too well to those who have been promiscuous, is that the gift itself becomes an empty thing apart from the covenant that it is meant to seal. It is per pervasive, par sorry, persuasive and coercive, Scripture tells us truly. Third, Temptation to sexual sin is effective and destructive. It often does its job well. It can get its hooks into us easily. And when it does, it's difficult to get away. Five and six. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. This speaking in context of the adulteress, the one who seems so attractive. In looking at porn, and we can just use that as one of the many applications that I will bounce back and forth between. In looking at porn, there's some, there's some clarity here, some fabulous help to the cloudiness of our confusion. When we read verses 3 and 4, she looks sweet and smooth and gorgeous and life-giving but she is lost and wayward and unstable and dead. Here's some clarity that might help. She is a victim herself. I'm not going to tell the stories or give the stats, but just consider the next time that pretty face or that shapely body might attract you. Men, pause and consider, what has this poor dear woman experienced? that she is being used in this way to entice me at this moment. Her life must be a living hell. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not even know the path of life. Many are the lies that she has been told. Many are the abuses that she has been victim to. And at the same time, she herself has many victims. They fill up the grave. The only question is, do you and I want to be among them? Sexual temptation is effective and destructive. Do we want to be a victim? And do we want to further her victimization? Do we want to be party to benefiting from her enslavement. That's the clarity that Proverbs is telling us. Phil Riken talks about this kind of temptation. 
And he talks about the waters that we swim in today. And this particular quote will be targeted at men, but it'll be applicable to both. Phil Riken talks about what it means to be a real man. He says, Committing adultery is sometimes considered a masculine thing to do. I would, by the way, expand his quote, not just committing adultery, but pornography is sometimes considered the masculine thing to do. Being sexually active or just joking about women and sex, that is sometimes considered the masculine thing to do. It's what you expect from a man who's a real man. That's just the way the men are, Riken says. But the example of King David 2 Samuel 11 shows that the real truth is just the opposite. You remember when David fell into his great sin with Bathsheba? Do you remember how the entire scene starts? He was not about his business as a man. He was where he never should have been. Everything that follows from that opening word saying, it was the time when kings go out to war, but David stayed home in Jerusalem and was wandering upon the roof of his house, tells us everything that follows are the acts of, a, of someone who is not a man, but someone who is in a place he never should have been to begin with. The man of God does not live for himself but for others. Sexual sin is a failure of godly manliness. I need to hear that, and you need to hear that. Temptation to sexual sin is effective and destructive. So what can we do? Well, let's look then for just a moment at what God commands us in this passage, and let's quickly draw some divine guidance on a few points from this passage. I'm going to back up then then to verse 2, which encourages us to expose the deception of sexual sin. That's what Proverbs 5 does, but encourages us to do the same, expose the deception of sexual sin. This father pleading with his sons says, "I I want you to see it. But I, but I want you to do it yourself. I want you to be able yourself to excavate and dig underneath the surface and get beyond the lies. Here it is in verse 2. Why is he doing all of this? So that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. Why is this father speaking this dire, frightening word to his sons? Well, to keep discretion and to reserve knowledge means to guard wisdom, means to hold it and keep it and make it useful for the moment when it is needed. That's the end game of this chapter of Proverbs. And so the question for you and for me is how are we going to guard wisdom? How are we going to preserve it and keep it so that in the moment when sensuality comes calling, when seduction comes wooing, we will have words. What words will you speak so that you can reserve knowledge in that moment? Will you have devised a plan? Because what Proverbs 5 is telling us is that we should have a plan, we should know ahead of time, and we should be prepared so that when the temptation comes, we can say, you know what, no, no thanks, golly, I don't, no death, no death for me today. I, I see what you're selling, I'm not buying. I don't think I want to gash my soul just this particular moment. But thanks, but no thanks. What words are we going to say? 
Let's combat the lies of porn and of other sexual temptations. Again, I will center on pornography here. But I think here is one ready set of replies where you can guard wisdom in your soul and be ready for the moment of attack. And I think you can apply it effectively in many other areas as well. First, let's just consider the lies, particularly of that seductive image. What is it saying? I am free. You can have me for nothing. I'm available. I'm all yours right now. <laughs> and I will satisfy you. I'll make you feel good. Are any of those true? But that's what the image is selling. So I think in the moment what we should do is be prepared to tell ourselves she is not free. Rather, she is extremely costly. And the rest of the passage will speak to that. Proverbs 7 is another passage that will speak to that. Many places in scripture will speak to how much it will cost you and me to give in. She's not free. Second, she's not available. She's never going to step out of that screen. She's, she's not going to call you up and say, hey, can, can we get together? She's not yours. That is a total lie. But that's what the picture is telling you. I'm available. No, she's not. And she won't satisfy. Oh, in the rush of the fleshly, red-hot, blood-filled emotion, it will feel like satisfaction, maybe for a few seconds or minutes or whatever, but it will end. And in its wake, it will leave a deep void, won't it? It, it feels like the rewards of a pursuit. That, by the way, is what sex and marriage is meant to be. It's meant to exhort a man to pursue the heart of his wife and for a wife to support and encourage the vision of her husband so that the rewards of that pursuit of one another can be experienced in the pleasure of sex. That's part of how it was designed to work. But that vision on the screen, there ain't no pursuit, and there ain't no rewards. You ain't doing nothing. You just think you're getting something. But we're not, are we? Well, guilt and shame. I'm going to add one more to complete the acronym, and that is this. She's not the truth. She's not free. She's not available. She won't satisfy, and she's not the truth. So you need a fast response. There you go. All of those are a lie. But that is an encouraging way to just pause in that moment and say, how will I say no? No, thanks. Not today. I'm not buying. I know that others have come up with other methodologies or uh, devices. John Piper has a great one called Anthem that goes by those letters. You may have something that works for you, brothers. This has been one by the grace of God I've come back to many times. And the Lord ultimately is just pleading with us to just say, be prepared. Be prepared. Because it's not like it's not going to happen. Not even that it's not going to happen before you go to bed tonight. You're like, ah, it's Sunday. It's a spiritual day. It's a religious day. There will be no temptations. Yeah, right. Well, let's continue then. B, 
Before we even get then to this point of crisis, F-A-S-T is maybe one response for the moment of crisis to, to reserve wisdom and to guard knowledge. But there's much more that we must do even before that point. Next, we find in verses 7 and 8, employ the benefits of safe distance. Employ the benefits of safe distance. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Look, if, if, if your goal uh, is, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop eating donuts, okay, then you are a fool to get up early every morning and go wander by the bakery and stand outside the window and press your face against the glass and take a number of deep breaths, right? Right? If, if you look upon a donut and lust, you have, you know, committed um, high caloric intake in your heart, I think is the biblical understanding of that. Employ the benefits of safe distance. Um, you know, being involved in campus ministry uh, for a number of years, I, I, I can't count the number of times I was involved in these kinds of conversations. In fact, I hate to admit, I can't even remember the number of times that I may have even asked or certainly thought this question. Hey, uh, me and my girlfriend, how far can we go? How close can we get? Now, the issue isn't getting the right answer. The issue is asking the right question because that ain't the right question. You steer clear. You navigate a wide berth. You stay far from the edge of the cliff is the best way. Maybe for you it's romance novels that take you to that place. Maybe it's leisure time on the internet without a purpose of being there. How do we stay away from sin's door is the exhortation. The Savior said to us, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. The meaning of that, of course, is not that we should all end up blind, but rather that we should take steps that are um, critical, serious, sacrificial, if necessary. 98% of the time in our lives, temptation is absolutely not a surprise. <laughs> we could have seen it coming miles away if we had just paused and thought, you know what, where am I going, what am I doing, and why am I there? Employ the benefits of safe distance. Well, I'm not going to read through the rest of the passage for the sake of our time because of what I want to get to, but I will highlight a couple of takeaways that might be. Verses 15 through 19, the author of Proverbs, this father will speak in his love for his sons to encourage them also to delight in the thrill of God's provision, to delight in the thrill of God's provision, speaking to him to enjoy the wife of his youth, to be exhilarated with her love. The beauty of intimacy in the marriage relationship is glorious in Scripture, isn't it? Scripture says that God cheers when a husband and wife lovingly and sacrificially and completely give their bodies to one another to experience oneness. Read the Song of Solomon. God cheers. There's a chorus of people. It's red-faced embarrassing to read the Song of Solomon about what God thinks about sex in marriage that honors him. Delight in the thrill of God's provision because everything else besides that is to steal that away. And then lastly, the father urges dwell in God's protective jealousy. 
dwell in God's protective jealousy. Here there is the contrast in verse 19 about why should uh, about being exhilarated with uh, his wife, and then in verse 20, why should you be exhilarated or intoxicated with an adulteress? That's the question he gives. And he says, 21, the ways of a man are before the, wa- the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. And then he gives a warning about how there is uh, a negative consequence for being exhilarated in the wrong way. The point is, God's eyes are on us all the time because he is jealous for you. He is jealous for your heart for him first and foremost. And he will have no other idols, but he is also jealous in his fatherly, kind, gracious care for the beauty of experiencing sweetness in your marriage. What a great encouragement that is. He is jealous and it is protective. Well, the final word then that I want to just touch on this morning that I believe will help grant us clarity, that will give us help in the, in the scene of prevention and protection and provision in that time before it happens, is this. Run to surpassing pleasures. Specifically, unlock the satisfaction of divine intimacy. Unlock the satisfaction of divine intimacy. I've given you a list of scriptures there, and um, I didn't want to pretend like this idea was there in Proverbs 5. Um, I'm I'm averse to wanting to read things into the Bible. Um, I want to find what's in the Bible and (laughs) help us pull it out. But I think this truth has to always be part of what completes the circle, because we will never grow in sanctification only by a mere list of rules or even only by a mere list of profoundly scary warnings. Do you know what we need much more than a list of rules? We need a new passion. Uh, Thomas Chalmers uh, wrote a great book 200 years ago about the expulsive power of a new affection. And he does a magnificent job in like five-syllable 19th century words explaining exceedingly well how you cannot fight against a passion with a group of rules. You can't fight a lust with a list. The only way you fight a desire is with a greater desire. And if you're a follower of Christ, you have a ready-made opportunity for the greatest desire in all of the universe because God, by birthing you, has given you a desire to know him. Anyway, that's all I'll say about that. There are some passages there. You and I are to cultivate and unlock the satisfaction of a greater affection, of a divine intimacy. If, if you want the, the secret of all secrets of fighting sin, right, God has made it abundantly clear. It's not a special secret that's only for the, you know, initiated. It's for every child of God who knows how good his or her father truly is. And that is what keeps us from all manner of destruction. Well, this is just um, exploding the seventh commandment out into what it looks like when the rubber meets the road there, this man speaks to his son. And what we're doing here is we're seeing how the law lights our way as it does in so many ways. It it guides our feet to a path of life away from what here we're told is a path of death. It looks good. It looks like life, but it ain't. The law trains us 
to please God with a humble heart that flees to him and says, I need you to be my satisfaction and my affection. Or as David wrote after his great sin in Psalm 51, 17, the Lord loves the contrite of heart. The Lord loves us when we come. It pleases him. And it also helps guard me from wasting my life, Proverbs 5 does. This is the law that is a lamp that lights our way. Proverbs 5 then is a word to our weariness. When we fight the battle constantly, before we fail, let Proverbs 5 clarify and guard and, and cause us to make a battle plan. It clears away our confusion. It protects us and it provides for us. Now, let's close this morning by looking at a word for us in our weariness, maybe after we may have failed. Turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. As you're going there, as with all of the other Ten Commandments, we fall short when rightly measured by the full understanding of this commandment. We fall short of every one of the ten. We are convicted. We need a Savior. Psalm 32 is a necessary response to Exodus 20.14 for every human being because we all fall short. Uh, Start with me, Psalm 32, first couple of verses. How blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Three quick takeaways for us when we have failed because we have. When we're in that place of remorse and we say, you know, I could have written Proverbs 5. I hate the fact that I could write it from my own experience. First, how blessed are the forgiven How blessed are the forgiven. That's our hope because of Christ. Many of you have heard our story, but when we dated for the first time, Molly and I had to break up after 14 months because of our sin, because of our selfishness, because we were headed to a path of destruction. By the grace of God, we had a man and a woman discipling us, holding us accountable, loving us, holding our feet to the fire and saying, you guys got a decision and it might change your life, what you decide. They were exactly right. They were exactly right. And with tears, man, fought with God, prayed. I already knew the right answer. But when we came to our senses and agreed with what we already knew God had said, we walked away. And you know what God did? (laughs) He lavished his grace upon us. Not because we were so spiritual, but just because he's that good. How blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We grew in that season of our lives like never before. Entirely to the glory of God, entirely because of his grace, because he just chose to show us how much he loved us as our father. Three years later, he put us in the same city and he brought us back together. 
The rest, as they say, is history. He is the God who forgives and redeems. And he gets all the glory for doing it because he does it so well. And we can only stand and say, how blessed is the man or the woman who is forgiven, Lord. Look at what you do. Second, sin makes us hide. Sin makes us hide, and sin makes us groan. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. The encouragement for us is this. If you're at that point, because we all sin in many ways, And we may not necessarily need to confess every sin we have to somebody else. If we did that, we probably would never have time to talk about anything else. But if you're at that point where your first reaction is to want to hide, and if you're at that point where the hiding of whatever is going on in your life is bringing you to a place where you feel wasted away, you feel weary, you feel like, I am so fighting this battle alone, and I just don't have strength, then don't wait any longer. Find a dear brother. Find a dear sister. Find someone of the same sex who can cheer for you and pray with you and walk with you. Because this is what sin does. David is writing this in light of his own sin, and he knows what it was to try and hide it, and he knows that didn't work at all. It was just slowly eating him alive from the inside out. Third, then we get the encouragement of what the Lord does. The Lord covers, preserves, and surrounds the repenting sinner. For the one who turns from his sin and turns to God, what does the Lord do? The Lord covers, and he preserves, and he surrounds. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. You see what made all the difference is David said, I acknowledged, I admitted. Proverbs 28.13 says that he who conceals transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will find compassion. If we confess and forsake our sin, what does scripture tell us? We find compassion. What, What an amazing hopeful call that is to our soul when we're weary and we say, I have no strength left. And he says, you forgave, you covered my guilt. I was guilty, but but you covered over it so that I could stand before you. And then you preserved me. You're my hiding place, seven. You preserved me from trouble. You kept me in that sweet place that I wanted to be from the beginning, but I foolishly wandered from. I rebelliously ran from, but now I'm where you keep me. By the way, in verse seven, did you catch the play on words there? Hide. Because what had he been doing before? He'd been hiding before. 
But now, now he's hiding. <laughs> oh, sorry. He'd been hiding before in his sin from God. But what's he doing now? He's hiding in God from his sin. Love that. And the end game, you surround me with songs of deliverance. Jump down to verses 10 and 11. For the sake of our time, we'll close. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. This one whose soul was being ebbed away by the lies that he had given himself to, by hiding in his sin, is now shouting and singing, is dancing and rejoicing. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does Proverbs 28 tell us? If we confess and forsake, we find compassion. What does 1 John 1 tell us? If we confess, he will forgive and cleanse. Those are what we have in Christ, our hope. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? Go and call your husband. I don't have a husband. I know. You've had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not your husband. What else did the Lord Jesus speak to this profligate Samaritan woman? If you knew the one who spoke to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we rejoice that you have given us through your Son the opportunity to come back to you when we stumble and we fall. And we stumble at many points. And we have fallen many times. But you, most gracious and good Father, you give us a word to our weary souls this morning. Come, and I will give you water that you might not thirst. Lord, would you grow each and every one of us. Praise you that you're already doing it in the knowledge of you the intimacy of knowing you and the richness where you fill, fill hearts and souls. Lord, you know the damage that is done in my own life and in the lives of all of us present here. Would you be our healer? Would you give us a new song? Would you cause us to bear testimony and say how blessed is the man or the woman whose sin is forgiven? because we want to glorify you like that. Praise you that you rescue us. Praise you that you've given us such wise and clear counsel and help us to reserve discretion and guard knowledge and be prepared ahead of time. All this, Lord, we ask for your glory. In Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us this morning.